Jesus, the servant savior, Mark chapter one, verse one, we read the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, as it is written in the prophets. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It was George Owen who wrote, quote, the world has many religions, but it only has one gospel. The gospel in its simplest terms was outlined by a known companion of John Mark, the author of this book. He was, of course, the elder statesman, Paul. Listen to Beck's translation of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 34. Quote, I brought to you what I received, that Christ died for our sins, as the Bible said he would. He was buried and rose on the third day, as the Bible said he would. You know, Mark wrote to the Roman world of the first century. And that world was a world that was filled with darkness and sin and wickedness. But it was also a civil war was raging in the empire. Nero had come towards the end of his reign. He's already put to death Peter and Paul. He's committed suicide. Galba and Otho would fight for control of the empire. Then both of them would be... uh, Killed and Vespasian would assume the ascendancy in 18 months. They had four Roman emperors and the empire was being torn apart. And also there was a war being fought on the eastern frontiers of Judea. So you have to understand something. Being a Jew or a Christian in that world would have meant strong suspicion on the part of Roman citizens. When you're in the midst of the war and your enemy is very different from you, a Jew then all Jews take on suspicion. Let me help put it in perspective. It would be like being a Jew in Germany at the very beginnings of World War II. Or imagine what it was like to be a Japanese American living in California or Colorado at the outbreak of World War II. Fear and suspicion grips the nation. And so they fabricate internment camps in order to keep citizens in isolation. Mark was written to a people who were tempted to follow rulers and role models whose power and prestige were very, very important. So Rome, remember, was based not necessarily on right, but might. The Roman emperor Galba, who served briefly during this turbulent time, 
said upon ascending the throne. Now that I am the emperor, I can do whatever I want to whomever I want. And that was the role model for the Roman citizen. Grab power, seize power, control. It was a you talk about a dog eat dog world. People were either Vikings or victims. History in the early church fathers tell us that John Mark was a personal companion and a close disciple of Simon Peter. Conservative Bible scholars teach that Peter provided much of the material for this gospel. Others suggest that Mark, as a careful student and a careful disciple, took notes of Peter's messages and he used those notes to compose this gospel that we're reading. One church father, Papias, wrote, and I quote, Mark, who was Peter's interpreter, wrote down carefully all that he remembered of what Christ had said or done, though not in order. For he had neither heard the Lord nor been his disciple. But afterwards, as I said, he had been Peter's disciple. Now, Peter used to teach according to the needs. In other words, it's, it's Papias's way of saying when Peter would give sermons, he would preach according to the issue at hand or the need at hand without giving an orderly summary of the Lord's sayings. So Mark was not wrong in writing down some of the things as he recalled them for his one concern was this not to omit or falsify anything that he heard. And this is from a fragment that was discovered. And uh, another church father, Irenaeus, wrote Matthew also issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect. While Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome and laying the foundations of the church after their departure. And the word departure here is is a picture of Peter and Paul's death. He's they're talking about their, their execution. And, and it says Mark, the disciple and, and interpreter of Peter, did also hand down to us in writing what had been re preached by Peter. This, again, was written by Irenaeus in his book called Against Heresies. Within a generation, if you will, the words that you're reading on this particular passage were well known within the church. There was another document called the Anti-Marcionite or Marcionite Prologue, which says clearly after the death of Peter himself, he, that's John Mark, wrote down this same gospel. Now, this gospel was written by and large to Romans, Gentiles, people who were living in this empire, the Roman Empire. And in this Roman Empire, the people would have been, for the most part, Unfamiliar with Jewish language, unfamiliar with Jewish custom, unfamiliar with Jewish traditions. And so that's why you're going to see in reading this gospel that Mark takes the time to explain some of those things to his readers. However, the audience does seem to be somewhat familiar with the story of Jesus. They've already been taught what seems like some of the important lessons. Um, there are Christian terms that he uses and doesn't explain. He doesn't go into detail explaining the life and the ministry of John the Baptist or baptism in general or the Holy Spirit. And the purpose of the writing appears to emphasize the servant nature of Jesus, but also without question to show that Jesus is the son of God. 
As a matter of fact, the first verse says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Over and over again throughout this gospel, Jesus is going to be declared the son of God. We're going to see it at his baptism, at his transfiguration. We'll see it when he confronts demons and the demons cry out, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And Jesus insists that they remain silent. At his death, we're going to see the Roman centurion as he sees the world shake and he hears, sees the darkness descend as he proclaims, truly, this is the Son of God in Mark chapter 15, verse 39. So over and over and over again, the testimony is that Jesus is the son of God. And so the the gospel is filled with action and realism. And one of the reoccurring words in the gospel is the word immediately. Look for it. It's going to appear (laughs) 41 times. And the reason why he uses this word over and over again is he wants to bring you through this fast paced drama The gospel is filled with human emotion and rich in eyewitness testimony. By the way, the whole gospel can be read in about 45 minutes. One of the things I thought when I was preparing this message is to throw the message away and just simply read it from start to finish for you. But maybe I'll do that at a later date. The gospels are arranged thematically, theologically. Not strictly historically or chronologically, which could cause some confusion for some readers, because if you've grown up in the same world I've grown up in, you want a story to have a beginning and a middle and an end. And you want it to flow in that logical kind of order, but it doesn't. As a matter of fact, William Cannon, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, writes, quote, Their arrangement, speaking of the Gospels, is to delineate the points of view of the various authors. Prophecy was dear to Matthew. He sees Jesus as the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies of God in the Old Testament. Mark is an activist and a conscientious Jew. To him, Jesus is the busy servant of God, working on behalf of God's chosen people, the Jews, doing everything he can to save them from their sins. Luke is a missionary and his mission as the companion to Paul was to the Gentiles and to him Jesus was the universal person the one who brought the grace and favor of God to the recipients of all humanity unquote in this gospel Jesus is presented as servant and savior he's a king but his throne isn't like any king you've ever seen Because the place where he's going to sit in power is a Roman cross. And his royal robe, it's not going to be a majestic purple robe, but rather it's going to be a servant's towel in which he wraps it around his waist and and serves people. He is presented without genealogy. Unlike Matthew and Luke, because remember, a servant doesn't require a pedigree. A servant doesn't need a genealogy. But he's no ordinary servant. He's Jehovah's servant. He is God's servant. 
The prophet Isaiah spelled that out in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 and 2, where he said, Behold my servant whom I uphold. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry nor cause his voice to be heard in the street, unquote. So in this opening chapter, Mark will describe some of the events prior to the ministry of Jesus in verses 1 through 13. And that's going to include witnesses from the Old Testament in verses 1 through 3. Malachi and Isaiah, a description of the work of John the Baptist, the servant's messenger in verses four through 11. And then in the chapter, we're going to get a preview, a sneak peek at the wrath of the devil as he realizes his time is almost up. And so we see the gospel of God in verse one, the promise of God in verses two and three, the mission of God's messenger in verses three and five, the character of God's messenger in verse six, and then the content of that message in verses seven through eight. So look with me again in verse one. It says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. It doesn't get any more simple than that. The beginning of the gospel. Right away, we understand something. The gospel is not complicated. It's simple. If you've never heard it, this is the simplicity of the gospel. Human beings are marked and marred by sin. Rebellion and disobedience to God has left an indelible mark on us. It hurt us very, very bad. It separated us from God and it separated us from eternal life. And God in Christ reconciles us through nothing other than the sacrificial death of Jesus. In Proverbs, it says, as cold waters are to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. That proverb reverberated with me since I was in Israel and India and most particularly in India. I can't even begin to tell you how exciting it is to live in a country where I can actually take a drink from a faucet. There's something else. When I was in Israel and I was able to get access to the news, but when I was in India, news was much more difficult to obtain. I wanted to know what was going on. I knew that there had been an earthquake in Japan. I knew that a a confrontation had broken out in Libya, but I didn't know how severe and how problematic. I wanted to know what was going on. When Proverbs says, as cold waters to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. The furthest you can go without being completely off the the planet is the opposite side of the world. When it's one o'clock in the afternoon here, it's one o'clock in the morning in India. But this news doesn't come from India or Japan. The news came all the way from heaven. The news from heaven was not that God hates you, but that God loves you. Not that God doesn't know anything other than what he already knows about you, the truth about your life, the truth about your heart, the truth about your sin. But he's not content to leave you in your sin, but to provide a savior. You know what? The Bible also indicates that the gospel is hidden to some. In 2 Corinthians 4, 3, Paul writes, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, hidden from some But as Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say, the gospel is open to all. 
the most respectable sinner has no more claim on it than the worst. And by the way, you're in one of those two categories here this morning. You're either a respectable sinner. Or like me, kind of a disrespectable sinner. And here's my point. We can go to extraordinary lengths to hide our sin, but God knows the truth. The great theologian Charles Hodge wrote, quote, the gospel is so simple that small children can understand it. It is so profound that studies by the wisest theologians will never exhaust its riches, unquote. Alexander McLaren was correct when he wrote, the gospel is not speculation, but fact. It is truth because it is the record of a person who is true. For the person who tries to embarrass you or humiliate you, that how can you know that the Bible is true? How can you know that the content is true? How can you know the message is true? There's no more truer message that exists. The gospel message began long before the birth of Jesus and the ministry of John. The gospel is the subject and object of the entire Bible. Jesus is the author of the gospel. The gospel was created by him, communicated through him. And the gospel message began in the mind of God, in the heart of God, and in the plan of God. The Lord God revealed through his word and the prophets the truth about man's condition. We're in trouble. And it begins right from the beginning in Genesis where we hear about the creation of Adam and Eve. We hear about them being placed in a garden. We hear about the one prohibition. Of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat, you shall die. There's not ten commandments. There's not 613 laws and edicts. There's just one, one, one commandment. Don't eat from the tree. Well, what if I want to smoke medical marijuana? In the garden, you could do it. Where there's no law, there's no transgression. But it only took one prohibition to reveal the sinister rebellion that lurks in the heart of human beings. The Bible teaches that we're lost and we're condemned and we are wayward. That's why it's called good news. In Acts chapter 26, verse 22, Luke writing about Paul's statement said, therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other thing than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. Paul reminded the small and the great that his message is no different than the message that Moses spoke and the prophets spoke. The, the message of Moses and the message of the prophets is I've set you aside. I've separated you for a specific purpose. I have a plan, and this is what the plan is going to include. I am going to make a provision for your sin so that your sin can be forgiven and so that our friendship and fellowship is secure. Those people who want to pit the Old Testament against the New Testament understand neither. Because... Both the Old Testament and the New Testament are consistent in their testimony that both point to the plan of redemption in the person and work of the Messiah. And so I want to draw something else to your attention. 
the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not the gospel of Mark. It's not the gospel of Peter. It's not the gospel of some man-made fabrication. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the message comes from him. And that's part of the point that you're going to see. Jesus' reoccurring testimony is, I came from heaven. I came to the earth. I came to tell you the truth. And so in verse 2, we see the promise of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I want to draw again your attention to the three people or the persons who are mentioned in verse 2. Behold, I send, that's the Father, my messenger, that's John the Baptist, before your face. Who will prepare your way before you. That's the Messiah. I want to draw attention to two words. Look at the word messenger in verse 2. Now look at the word voice in verse 3. The word messenger and the word voice are going to be references to John the Baptist. John the prophet sent by God. To prepare the way for his son. And so it says, as it is written in the prophets, you'll note that that's plural. And I suspect that it's an overarching reference to all of the prophets, but most, more specifically to Malachi and Isaiah. And Malachi, the prophet, we read in chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The prophet Malachi makes this prediction in the context of an overwhelming threat that is taking place to the people of Israel. The Lord's anointed, the king, the Lord's anointed, the king will have a herald. There will be a messenger. The messenger will cleanse the temple and purify the worship of the temple before the anointed one of God. And I want you to note something else, that there is a there is this sense in which clearly Jesus comes to save us. And that's true. But there's another reason why Jesus comes, not simply to save us, but to purify us, to hone us, to create within us a heart and a desire to be like Jesus. Now, the modern world, like the ancient world, was filled with every kind of moral and social corruption. The landscape of Rome and Rome's provinces were littered with broken lives. I wish I could take you back in time. I wish just for a brief moment we could remove the veil. Wouldn't it be wonderful to just be able to just for a brief moment walk on the streets of Rome during this tumultuous time? And I think that if you did, you would see everything you see now. If you were to take a journey to Hong Kong or Bangkok, if you were to go to Abu Dhabi or you were to go to Mumbai, if you went to any major metropolitan center anywhere in the world, you would see riches and you would see poverty. You would see slaves and sexual trafficking, every kind of incredible art that you can imagine. But every kind of perversity would be available. That's the world to which he's 
he's writing. Isaiah in chapter 40, verse three says the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. It's almost word for word in verse three, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight in ancient times as well as modern times. If you have a visit of a dignitary, if a king or a ruler is coming and making their way into the place where you live, enormous preparations had to be made. For those of you who live in and around Denver, in the last several years, we've had visits from Barack Obama. We've had visits from George Bush. We've had uh, visits from... Um, Bill Clinton, we've had numerous visits from presidents. And when a president comes to our town, enormous preparations have to be made. The local police department, along with the FBI, along with the Secret Service, along with the local municipalities, have to make extraordinary accommodations in order to make the visit one that is worry free and problem free. The Romans built roads. But there were also trails that were mostly dirt paths. And in the ancient times, great kings had runners, messengers who would come and they would announce the event that the monarch was coming. And so people were expected to clean the road, level the road, remove whatever obstacle might hinder the path of the king. And so in that sense, John's message is simple. Prepare yourself. Prepare yourself. Repair the road. Repair yourself. Prepare yourself. The king is coming. The king is coming. This is a very simple message. In India, <laughs> there was a certain English pastor who was preaching a series of messages to a remote group of Indian pastors and I can somewhat identify with this. I've spent many hours in remote villages and his opening sentence went something like this. The beatific familiarity of the chapter traditionally appointed for Quinquagesima, which is 50 days before Lent, must not cause us to neglect its profundity. And here's how the interpreter took the liberty of translating it. So far, this man has said nothing worth remembering. <laughs> when he says something important, I will tell you. I sometimes feel that way. That there's a little switch inside of your head that says, Gino hasn't said anything important yet. Go ahead. There he is. There's the off switch. I don't think John the Baptist had that problem. His messages, though few in words, had great results. It's a simple message. Prepare your hearts. The king is coming. The Bible says in verse four, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. I want to draw your attention to something really quickly. There is a baptism that remits sin. It's not the ritual cleansing of water. It isn't being immersed in water. Even if you're in a pool, if you are in a heated pool, if you are in a pool filled with cleansing or chlorine, it might cleanse the outward part of the body. Later, John is going to say that Jesus will come and he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. John has access to things physical. 
temporal in order to represent something that's eternal. Imagine John in the wilderness, lean, gaunt, solitary. He's preaching with fire and tears. Yes, tears. Because like the, like the prophets of old, he's calling the people to turn their backs on sin and to turn their hearts completely to the true and living God. And so, again, he's assuming a role that was occupied by Isaiah and Jeremiah and clearly Elijah. In other words, remember, all of their role was to speak to the nation and say, it's time for you to forsake sin and it's time for you to turn your back on sin and it's time for you to turn your face and your heart fully and finally to the truth about God. And that's part of what is being said. That's the message of John. Turn your back on sin. Turn your hearts towards God. The message was simple and repetitive. Repent. The Messiah is coming. The nation has to turn its back on sin. The king is coming. We have to escape the filth and corruption that is in this world. Turn your back on sin. But here's the problem. Sin is within each and every one of us. Its wicked and perverse power grips us and traps us. In verse 5 it says, Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan confessing their sins. The passage gives us a hint of the enormous impact that John's message was making. The person familiar with Judaism would have been shocked at this. Jews didn't participate in ritual baths in the sense of ritual cleansing from sin. Now, clearly, there's a ritual cleansing that Jews experienced called a mikvahot. They would go into a bath and they would come out as they approached the temple. But baptism was something reserved for Gentiles who converted to Judaism. Part of the point of this passage that you may not understand, you're so familiar with baptism and you're so familiar with the image of people being baptized in water, you some, we sometimes forget that, that this was something absolutely novel. Jews didn't get baptized. And the Jordan River is a tiny river that connects the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. And when it says, then all of Judea and those from Jerusalem, we're talking about this huge impact. And again, it might be difficult for you to imagine. We're not talking about hundreds of people and we're not even talking about thousands of people. According to estimates that scholars have concerning the impact of John the Baptist, as we see tens of thousands, 50,000, 100,000, maybe 300,000 people would show up in the middle of the wilderness. Now, remember, this becomes a type and a picture of Israel's own past. The people of Israel, the children of Israel, came out of Egypt, which is a type and a picture of the world. They pass through this baptism called the Red Sea, and then they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And it's in that wilderness wandering. They're in the wilderness. They're being honed. They're being shaped. They're being purified. They are marching, and they're marching in a direction that's going to mean home. 
Rome. They are marching and some of them are rebelling, rebelling and, diso- and disobeying God. And they begin to die and they die in the wilderness and they die by the thousands and they die by the hundreds of thousands. And then they die by the millions until only a handful enter into the land. And so they go back to this wilderness. Remembering the covenant and remembering the promise. And John brings them back to this wilderness. The baptizer has this outward cleansing, which is supposed to foreshadow an inward cleansing. Seneca in the first century, a very famous Roman writer and poet called Rome a cesspool of iniquity. Juvenal, another writer, spoke of Rome as a filthy sewer into which flowed the abominable dregs of every Syrian. That's Syria and Turkey and Achaean. That means Greek stream. In other words, he said, think about this metropolitan area being flooded with people from all over the world. Filled with wickedness. I've been to some wicked cities. Filled with wickedness. In India, in Mumbai, in Calcutta, in Delhi. If you go north and then east to where the Ganges enters, uh, begins, and then you go all the way down, you can see floating in the Ganges River dead bodies. Uh, carcasses people die they burn their ashes the sewage and the filth and the dregs flow into this river and pollute it it becomes this type and picture of a civilization filled with wickedness so why is john's message so impacting that's part part of the reason you need to think about this particular what was it about this message at this time not that hundreds not that thousands not even tens of thousands but hundreds of thousands of people would show up and listen to what he has to say i think about that what is it about this message that caused so many people To go, I want to hear what he has to say. I think it's partially because the message rings true. But remember who John is. Is he called by God? What do you think the answer is? For those of you familiar with the New Testament, is he filled from the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb? Is the message a prophetic message? Is the message a passionate message? A message that's true, a message that's passionate, a message that's prophetic. It seems to have all of the ingredients that would make for a powerful, impacting message. And see, this becomes the point for you, my brothers and my sisters. You see, John's message is impacting for all of the reasons, perhaps, that ours aren't impacting. Are you called by God? Do you have a message that's true? And would you say it's safe to say that John's character and John's countenance and the way that John is on the inside is exactly the way that he is on the outside? He lives for the Lord. He carries out the task of providing a witness to the world and preaching a message 
that was given to him by God for the world. And the and the result of that message was the recognition of personal sin, a deep desire to confess sin and a deep desire to repent. And by the way, that word repentance is a word that has fallen out of favor in the world in which we live in. Repentance is the translation of a Greek word which meant to change your mind, to have another mind. But it meant more than just changing your mind or having another mind. There was the sense in which you changed your mind in such a way that you were willing to abandon the direction you were going and you were going to head into a new direction. You weren't, com you weren't content to simply be sorry for your sins and fed up with your miserable life and punished by your addictions. That there was something inside of you where you said, I've had enough. I've had enough. Sometimes that happens when you become a mother or a father or a grandfather and a grandmother. You begin to realize, I, I can't have that kind of life for my children. The wicked, perverse stupidity that I grew up in, it can't be a part of my family. But I need to tell you something. Repentance will always be a meaningful word so long as there's such a thing as sin. Do you understand what I just said? Repentance will always be a meaningful word so long as we struggle with sin. For Christians who have fallen into sin, that change may include great sorrow. Sorrow may precede repentance, but it is not repentance. Judas was sorry and he killed himself. Herod was sorry and he kills John the Baptist. Neither repented. Billy Graham said, quote, if your sorrow is because of certain consequences which have come on your family because of your sin, this is remorse. It's not true repentance. If, on the other hand, you are grieved because you've sinned against God and his holy laws, then you're on the right road. Paul expressed this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, where he says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. When I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior, prior to that, there was this haunting, awful sense of the weight of my wickedness and my sin pressing me down. I was only 16 years old when I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. But already at 16, I had done the, the most awful things imaginable. My father and my mother separated when I was three years old. My mother conceived me when she was 15 and had me when she was 16 and then left my father three years later when I was three years old. And we went into a world where there wasn't much support. And because my mother was uneducated and she was unable to get a job, she had to do whatever she could in order to put food on the table, which meant that she was gone for a very, very long time. And I lived in a world where there were no rules. 
The only rules were the ones that I established for myself. And by the way, when you grow up in a world where there where anything goes, guess what? Anything will go. And some of you grew up in that world. Some of you had decency and integrity. You grew up in a world where there were governors and restrictions that kept you from going over the edge. But some of you, even with those prohibitions and restrictions, you went in a direction that you knew you shouldn't go. And for John the Baptist, he understood that it wasn't the dunking in the water that changed their mind and their heart. You didn't get dunked until the water, until you heard the message of sin and repentance and you realized that there was something wrong with you. And so John speaks of a Messiah who will come and not drench you in water, but in the Holy Spirit and give you a new life. And when you discover that there is a new life in Christ, that it isn't just simply getting more information about Jesus, but it means discovering and experiencing his love and his grace and his mercy. Your heart is broken because of your sin, and then it becomes broken from the dictates of sin. I heard the story of an open air meeting where people came to confess their sin in the 1800s and the 1900s. People would come during the meetings of people like D.L. Moody and, and Billy Sunday, and they would confess their sins and they would talk about the reality of what it meant to have a changed life in Christ. And the one drunk came by. A drunk gave his testimony about how God changed his life, how he lived in a world of drunken stupor. Beating his wife, aggravating and afflicting his children, amounting to nothing. And a skeptic came by and he began to mock the man. And he said, yeah, right. This religion, it's a mere dream. It's nothing more. You're living in a fantasy world. You're living in a dream world. You're living under this religious fiction that somehow this mythical man can change your life. And the audience fell silent. And a 10 year old girl stood up. And she knew what it was like to grow up in a home. And experience a father's drunken rage and abuse and wholesale terror. And she heard the remark. And she said, please, sir. If this is only a dream, please don't wake him up. He's my daddy. People they may mock and people may laugh and people may say that you're living a lie and that you're living a fantasy and nothing more. But if we had time, many of you could stand up and talk about what God did in your life and what God did in your heart. That's what happens when we have baptisms, by the way. That's what will happen this afternoon. The people who are being baptized this afternoon will get a chance to stand up and say, this was my life before I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. And this is my life now. And look at verse six. It says, now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. Is it because there was no men's warehouse? Is it because there's no Chick-fil-A in the Judean wilderness? 
camel's hair and leather and locusts and honey. Mark is reminding the reader that John's lifestyle was marked by simplicity and humility and self-denial. Remember, he is a Nazarite from his mother's womb. His hair, no razor touches it. His lips, no unclean thing ever tastes. He is separated. He is separated. He's separated in his mother's womb and he's separated from his mother's womb. And every moment of every day, he has one goal and one purpose and one function. He has been separated by God from sin in order to perform this task. John lives in the wilderness to avoid the sights and the distractions of human civilization, but also temptation and extravagance. By the way, do you think anyone could call, say, say to John the Baptist, hey, you're just in it for the money? <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. He identifies with the prophet Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. He adopts the dress and the mannerisms of Elijah. He identifies with the poorest of the poor. And I want you to understand something. John's dress was in a sense a protest against the soft and ornate robes that marked the crass materialism of the public at large and the religious leaders. But there's something else. John's life was no different from John's message. John says, I want you to live a separated life. Did he have a separated life? I want you to have a simple life. I want you to have a selfless life. I want you to have a sacrificial life. I want you to live in a world where you're preparing your heart to meet the master and meet the king. Isn't that a perfect description of his life? As a matter of fact, in other accounts, in, in Matthew's account, John the Baptist rebukes the religious leader saying, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. For the simple, John said, if you have two tunics, give one to another person. John told the tax collectors, be fair in John 3.13. He warned the soldiers in Luke 3.14 to be content and not to be high-handed and not to extort people and not to take bribes. And so his life was powerful. And his ministry was powerful. Imagine a man filled with the Spirit with a prophetic message and a passionate message. Do you realize that really becomes a picture of your life? The life that God's called you to. You see, you read in this text and you think about John being the messenger. But guess what? You're a messenger, too. And whether you like it or not, you're sending a message to everyone around you. About your life. And about who you are. And what you believe. That's the point. And in verse 7, look what it says. And he preached, saying, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. Now think about this for just a moment. The message of, Don, of John includes repentance from sin, 
But the other part of his message is the preeminence of the Messiah. When he says, one's coming after me who's mightier than me, really mightier than you, separated from your mother's womb, in your mother's womb, separated from sin, a lifestyle committed to declaring the truth about God. Now think about this. Whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. Do you understand what John the Baptist is saying? Unstrapping the sandal was the job of a slave. A slave in the household would take the master or the mistress when you would walk on the dirty, filthy, disgusting, muddy roads and you would take off their shoe and you would wash their feet. Here's what he's saying. I am not even worthy to be a slave in in the king's kingdom. Can you imagine that for just a moment? If he's not worthy to be even be a slave in the master's kingdom. And Jesus said of him, among those born of women, there's no one greater. How can you, in your wildest, self-absorbed world, think that you have anything to offer the king or his kingdom? Think about this for just a moment. Part of the message, repentance. Another part of the message, preeminence of the Messiah. Another part of the message, nothingness of self. It was a slave's job. And he says, I can't even take that job. In verse 8, he says, I indeed baptize you with water. In other words, I take a physical element in order to do an external washing, in order to typify a change of mind and a change of heart. But look what it says. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In another gospel, it says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's restricted to the natural things. But the Messiah has at his command something supernatural. Who in the world has the power to dunk you and immerse you in the Holy Spirit? Remember in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4, for those of you who are with me, Peter wrote, by which have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that through these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Preparation and participation come because it's God who's preparing your heart and it's the Holy Spirit who changes you. You can go to church every single day for the rest of your life. You can read every word in the Bible, in Hebrew and Greek, and not be changed. Something has to take place on the inside. The servant's messenger preached repentance and urged people to confess their sins. The first message Jesus ever preaches will also be a message of repentance. By the way, whenever we ask people to recognize their sin, whenever we ask people to confess their sin, whenever we ask people to turn from their sin to God, 
we're preaching an unpopular message. John's message is going to be popular for a while. But the message will cost him a prison term and his life. He will fall victim to the bitter hatred of the religious establishment. Jesus will preach repentance, expose hypocrisy of his contemporaries. And they will kill him. My brothers and my sisters were called to live lives of simplicity and purity and to preach a message that may prove unpopular with family and friends and culture. But the truth is, your message will be effective in direct proportion to its prophetic content, the passion in which it's delivered, and the consistency of your own life. There was a sign in the library. It said, People may not believe everything you say, but they will believe everything you do. And so, my brothers and my sisters, repentance, preeminence of Jesus, nothingness of self, that's your message. That's my message. That's the beginning of the message. We're going to have an exciting time in the book of Mark. Are you ready? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an exciting time, Lord. Lord, we're living in a world where the broken, shattered, empty, littered lives are all around us. But Lord, if we have a message, it's the same message that John had. We don't have to stay dirty. We can get clean. We don't have to stay dirty. There is a cleansing. There is a washing. There is a forgiveness. There is a redemption that's available in the person of Jesus. And Lord, we pray that we would take advantage of that. Lord, I pray for that person who finds himself or herself far from you. Lord, I pray that in the quietness of their heart that they would do exactly that. Confess their sin. That in rebellion and wickedness, that they would admit that they've dishonored you and disobeyed you. That they would confess their sin, that they would agree with you that it's wrong. And that, Lord, you would be willing to wash them and cleanse them and fill them with the Holy Spirit and give them the power to live lives that are God-honoring and Christ-liberating. And so again, Father... We thank you for the gospel, the truth that our sins can be forgiven, that grace and mercy is available to us on no other basis than the sacrificial death of Jesus and his glorious resurrection to prove that the message was true. Lord, it seems so simple. And yet. People pervert it and distort it and mock it. But Lord, we thank you for it because it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. And so, Lord, we commit this time to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.